Thank you, Pastor Brenda. Let me add my welcome to hers. It's great to be with you all this morning. Welcome to Community Church. And we do not take meeting together for granted, especially this weekend. On Friday, I was thinking maybe I'll have to record this sermon and we'll be online only, but thankfully we can be here. But we do welcome those online and glad that you can join us. We are in the beginning of a series that's going to take us all the way to Advent, Genesis to Revelation, the beginning and the end. Now, we're not looking at every book in between Genesis and Revelation, but we are looking at the first start of Genesis, really this week and next week, and then we're going to spend the rest of the time in Revelation, going through the whole book. It's a complex book, it's a challenging book, and I'm looking forward to unpacking it. Our life groups will go through curriculum when we start with Revelation. So if you're not in a life group, it's a great time to try one out, to dig into this really complex book and that is difficult to understand. What we talk about on Sundays probably will not be enough to answer all the questions, but it will start you on that journey. And life groups is a great place to, to journey with others as we unpack it. Now, if I were to ask you, and you don't have to say it out loud, where does the gospel begin? For me, a big chunk of my life, I would have said, with Jesus. Where does the good news begin for Christians? I would have started with Jesus. He says he was there to proclaim the good news, right? And yet, that is to dismiss a big chunk of our scripture and God's story with us. Rather, the good news starts all the way back in Genesis 1. This is good news for us. In it, we find that we are created to flourish. This is the original good news. This is God's word to us. And so we're going to unpack this part of that today. Let's pray. God, I thank you that your Holy Spirit is here. And I pray that hearts and minds will be open to the ways you want to communicate to each one of us today, God. May we see you more closely and more deeply, God. May we experience your presence this morning, whether it's through the teaching or through the worship or through communion or through fellowship. God, may we encounter you this morning. Amen. All right, created to flourish. The creation story starts with that. It sets the stage for both of our worship and our flourishing because these are actually related to each other. Now, when was Genesis written? There was nobody there to record the creation of the cosmos, right? And we find, most scholars believe that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. We call those the Pentateuch. That is a long time after the initial sort of oral tradition of this story. So what was happening with Moses while he was writing, most scholars, again, think that it was after Israel had been freed from Egypt, Somewhere between there and the promised land, he has written these five books of the Bible. Now, what's important to understand when we unpack and try to understand Scripture is what's happening in the cultures around. This isn't written to a vacuum. Just like I'm not speaking to you in a vacuum, we're all a product of our surroundings. Our worldviews get shaped by life around us. And so it's written in the context of this ancient Near Eastern religions all around them. They all had creation stories as well. They had their own creation stories. And this is Moses saying, let me tell you our creation story. Let me tell you about Yahweh and who he is and what has he created us for. 
Now, if you're interested in the other religions, creation stories, I've got snippets of those. Would share with you, I've got some of the books I've used up here and articles in my office if you care to see what those are. But let's dig into our story, starting with Genesis 1, 1 to 2. When God began to create the heavens and the earth, the earth was complete chaos, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Some translations will say the earth was formless and void, and God steps into that reality. Now, one of the differences between our creation story and other religions' creation stories is the other religions start with the creation of their gods. How did their gods come to be? Our starts with God already pre-existing. He pre-existed creation itself. So that's where our story starts. Then God begins to shape what his creation will be about. He'll shape what it's made for, what its purpose is. The creation story assumes a certain um, already material there, this formless and void. There's something there that God begins to shape. The ancient religions weren't so concerned with how did that initial stuff get there. What they're concerned with is what was it made for? Why does it exist? What is the meaning of life? Now, if you said, how did that stuff get there? We would say, of course, from God. But that's not really the point. The focus of the story is how is this stuff transformed miraculously by God and for what purpose? John Walton, an Old Testament scholar at Wheaton, says it this way, to create something, to cause it to exist in the ancient world, means to give it a function, not material properties. To give it a function. Now, if you were to go on and read Genesis 1, you'll see this functional um, creation that happens, that God shapes these things for a purpose the creation itself, and for humanity. And it happens in seven days. Now, I was raised with understanding this as a seven literal days. It says days, and so it's meant to be days. And so God created everything in seven days. And that was the church and the tradition that I came out of. And when science began to reveal, actually, the earth is much, much older than that, um, our tradition, my tradition, really defended this literalness to the seven days, despite science to the contrary. And so that's what I thought it meant. And it was seven days, and that's what my pastor said, and that's what I believed. And then I went to college, a Christian college, a conservative college, and all of a sudden there are theologians and scholars and scientists said, that's not actually how you read this story here. A literal seven days is not the way to read this. You're defending something that actually isn't even the point of the story. And I began to read what was the point of this story if it wasn't seven literal days. So I began to shift in my understanding and began to have a more complex view of what God was doing here in creation and a more nuanced and and much more rich view. So I graduated, 
and um, was applying for a youth pastor positions and was eager to get one of those positions. I was working at an insurance company, um, which if you work for an insurance company, wonderful, great. For me, it was not life-giving, and um, I, I wanted to do ministry, and I was the finalist for this one church um, down the road, and they wanted to hire me, and they called me, and they said, well, before we can offer you the job, you'll need to t- change your position on creation. You need to be able to say that it was a literal seven days. And I thought, I really want this job, but there's no way I believe that. And I began to share with them, you know, I don't think youth are really quite concerned with whether it's a literal seven days. They got a lot of other stuff going on in their life that they're concerned about. And um, ultimately, I, I did not get the job offer, and that was probably a good thing. That was a major shift for me in my understanding, and I don't know what understanding you might have grown up with in reading scripture, but sometimes we can hold on to the wrong things. And part of what I never saw, that God's creation, it's really presented as God's temple. The seven days are not given as a time period over which all of the material in the world was created. Actually, it's, it's given a time period of how God creates his temple in our world. It culminates with the seventh day where God inhabits the temple on his day of rest. The garden is a symbol of a temple. It's the place where both God and humanity reside, a place where we live in community together. Temples in the ancient Near East were primarily residences for the gods, The temple was the very center of the cosmos. There were waters of life that emerged from the temple. And you see those same things in our creation account. How long do you think these temple dedication ceremonies lasted? How many days? Call out a number. Seven. Yes, seven days. That number is very specific and meaningful. This is what the other religions did. You have a seven-day inauguration ceremony. We have a seven-day creation account of God's temple, his garden, his kingdom here on earth. We're told in Genesis 1-9 that God gathers the waters into this place. And later we see imagery of those life-giving waters going out into the world. We read that there's a creation of the sun and the moon. And, I mean, just another reason not to take the account literally, the sun isn't created until the fourth day. So how, how can you even, you know, try to fit it into a 24-hour period? But this word for light is also a worship word. It's a word that is used for the light in the tabernacle. There's a sacredness to what God is doing. And then finally, we read God finishes his creative work by placing his image into creation, into the temple. We are that image. Now, there are differences with our creation account and other creation accounts as well. One, in other religions, the people bring the food to the gods. In ours, God provides the food for the people. The garden is rich with abundance and food for the people. In other creation accounts, Humanity is barred from the sacred places, but in ours, they're centered in it. They're meant to be living in it, not by themselves, but with God. In other religions, the gods wanted images of themselves created to be worshipped. In our religion, we, in fact, are those images of God. 
to worship not ourselves, but to worship our creator. So what did God create us for? We see in Genesis 1 and 2 this beautiful relationship between God and his creation, and we see what God has called his creation to, to both priestly and kingly work. God creates his images for work in this world. At the center of this garden of Eden is this temple, and humanity's job is to work this earth, to work this garden. Humanity has been created for a purpose, to work and to take care of it, Genesis 2.15, or literally to serve it and to keep guard over it, these Hebrew words, avad and shamar, and Pastor Brenda will talk a little bit about those next week as well. But these words are significant. They're worship words. They're words that are used when they talk about in numbers how to take care of the furnishings in the worship spaces, in the tabernacles. So there's this priestly work that we are given to. And it's saying that all of our work is sacred. Whether it's tilling the ground, cultivating, it's all sacred work. Humanity is also given kingly responsibilities. We're invited to rule over the earth. We're invited to expand the reign of God. The garden is meant to go out into all of the world. And priestly, we're to take care of it. So God creates the heaven and the, and the earth, and he is king over it, and he has deputized us as his creation to go out and to bring his flourishing to the whole of it. The garden is supposed to fill the whole earth. So we're created to co-rule with God, to co-create, to be his image bearers in this world. Genesis 1, 26 to 28 says this, Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over the wild animals of the earth, and over the creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. These are some of these kingly responsibilities. So God created humankind in his image. In the image, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and of the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. So both Adam and Eve are called to be blessed and to multiply, to rule, to have dominion. This is for all of humanity. God blessed them. He said to them, this is both of them, to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill, to subdue, to have dominion over every living thing. This was given to both Adam and Eve. Women and men together compromise this image of God. It's an extraordinary statement because it's written during a time of patriarchy with Moses. Now, I know several of you watched the Barbie movie this week. Um, and some of you have watched it before this week. I gave a warning last Sunday that I might give you a spoiler today. So there's a couple of spoilers. If you haven't seen it, you don't want any spoilers, just cover your ears. But Eric and I watched it for the second time, and near the end of the movie, Barbie's creator has a conversation with Barbie, and 
Um, as I was watching it, I thought, oh, this is a, like a wonderful image of a creation scene. And I come to realize that the director actually had in mind Michelangelo's creation of Adam with the finger of God touching Adam. So you have these hands together, this, this rich theological scene between Barbara and her creator. And the creator is telling Barbie that the end of the story is not yet written. She created her, but she has freedom. She created her, but she has choices that she has to make. The creator is not micromanaging her life. The creator is giving her a certain freedom to make her choices. The creator gives up control. The creator allows for self-discovery. And it's risky because you don't know what your creation will do. See, we weren't created to be robots. We are created in the image of God to worship or to not, to be in relationship with our creator or to not be. The creator creates us with an incredible amount of autonomy. We're created to flourish and meant to bring it into the world, but our creator doesn't force us to do that. If you know chapter 3 in Genesis, you know that there's this word, the fall, that we use to describe it, where Adam and Eve uh, disobeyed God. Um, Sin and shame enter into the equation. Um, God is looking for them. They experience shame and nakedness, and they want to cover themselves. And there's a new reality that's happened, but God's mission of flourishing has not been changed. That is still his mission. Instead of creation sort of uh, worshiping God, it yields part of its authority to creation itself. And now their toil, their work will be toil and childbirth will be painful. There will be chaos in the world. And they move out into that chaotic world. But God's desire for his kingdom to expand is still there. So these first two chapters, we have heaven and earth completely overlapped. This is God's temple. It's how things are supposed to be functioning. God's will is being done. Then you have this separation that happens when sin enters the world. Now there's things happening in this earth that are not how God intended, but God chooses a people. God wants to bless all nations through this chosen people. God sends Jesus, and what does Jesus pray? We echoed that prayer today. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're designed to create this flourishing and kingdom here, and ultimately Revelation will read in this series how that all comes back together again but that will be about 12 weeks away, all right? This is kind of the arc of where we're heading. So what happened in the fall? I want to just unpack one aspect of that for us today. Patriarchy as a result of the fall. We read about this in Genesis 3.16. Your desire will be for your husband. This is after Adam and Eve have sinned, and he will rule over you. See, it's not God's will to desire the husband, to dominate, to cling to. This word can be unpacked with a lot of different definitions. It's not God's plan that he will rule over you to dominate or put down. God wants the husband to love his wife. There's this mutuality they were created for that sin has interrupted. This verse is a part of the fall. 
It's a part of the curse. It's not God's intention. The Bible teaches that the rulership of Adam and over Eve resulted from the fall and therefore not a part of the original created order. It's a prediction of the effects of the fall and not a prescription of God's ideal order. See, patriarchy was not what God wanted. Patriarchy was a result of human sin. Because of their fallen nature, many men have used their power and their positions to abuse women. Now, we're not going to unpack this entirely, but just a couple of bullet points about patriarchy. There's patriarchy in the world, and there can be patriarchy in the church, depending on one's theological beliefs. But patriarchy in the church says that men and women have different roles and gifts in the church and in home, and that men are to be leaders in both of those places. Biblical equality, to contrast patriarchy, says that there's no God-ordained hierarchy based solely on gender differences, and there's several scriptures there. Now, about maybe a year and a half, two years ago, I did a two-part sermon on this, and if you want the full sort of teaching um, that link will bring you to it. I don't want to unpack it any more than that today. Obviously, at Community Church, we believe in biblical equality. We have females in all levels of leadership. Pastor Brenda obviously is here. This was another major shift in my thinking as I was growing up. The church I grew up in did not have female pastors. And I was told that Scripture meant that they weren't supposed to be pastors. And again, as I expanded the circle of what the Christian thought was on this and dug in and met people, actually realized there are more helpful ways to understand what these scriptures mean and what was God saying. So I'm not going to go into all of those today. So it was a major shift. And um, one of the things I loved about the Barbie movie is it shows you this reversal of patriarchy. It shows you what a world would look like if it wasn't patriarchal. And um, for men, at least for me when I was watching this, it was really kind of eye-opening to experience it through the eyes of Ken and what the opposite of patriarchy looked like and felt like for him. Now, for those of you... Um, that saw the movie, this might make more sense. If you haven't seen it, I apologize. This is a bit of a spoiler. But Barbie world is not patriarchal, right? It's more matriarchal. And then they experience the real world and come to find out that patriarchy is what is dominating the real world. Ken sees himself in Barbie world as objectified, as an object as there to try to attract the attention of the female of Barbie, he goes to the real world and realizes men have the power. And that is seducing for him. And that's how he wants to run his life and how he wants to create his new world where now it's not matriarchal, but it's patriarchal. But here's the thing that the movie shows. Dominating the other ultimately is not fulfilling. The movie presents it as a zero-sum game. Either men have the power or women do. There's no mutuality. There's no reciprocity. There's no image-bearing from both sexes. And it isn't until near the end 
where they realize that neither of those worlds is ultimately fulfilling. Barbie world or kingdom. That they realize mutuality is actually a better way and more fulfilling for both of them. They begin to discover flourishing. Now, I don't know if there's going to be a Barbie part two where that world actually comes into existence. But um, if you haven't seen the movie, I would encourage you to see it. Um, Maybe especially if you're a guy, uh, to be able to see through that lens, I think, was one of the gifts of the movie itself. So we see in this arc of scripture that the middle there, that kingdom of heaven, right? The kingdom of heaven is not Barbie world and it's not kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is where God's will is done, where human flourishing happens. And God calls us into that reality. Our good news, church, starts all the way back in Genesis. The beginning of our story is about God's design for us, our purpose that he has created us for that we, in fact, were created to flourish, created to be in relationship with God as part of that flourishing, co-ruling with God as part of that flourishing, working as if to God, right? working the jobs he has given us is a part of our flourishing, working with mutuality instead of dominion is a part of our flourishing, and God has designed us for it. Let's pray. God, I thank you for who you are, and I thank you for who you have made each one of us. God, I thank you that you have made us in your image, that you have created us, God, with meaning and purpose. God, and we acknowledge that we mess up. We misuse our power. We take advantage of others. We want our own way over your way, God. We recognize that if we were in the garden, we might have made the same choices as Adam and Eve. We confess, God, to you things we've done, things we're doing, attitudes we've had, parts of our hearts, God, that have grown cold and bitter. God, we confess to you. Jesus, but we know that you are a redeemer and you are a forgiver. God, so please hear our prayers, God. May we be real with you, both in what we've been created for and the ways we've been sidetracked, ways we've gone astray. God, may we hold on to your life-giving grace. May you encourage us this morning. In your name we pray. Amen.